Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be with you again today. Uh, Today we have Katie joining us again. Hello, Katie. Hey, everyone. Great to be here with you. So I think today's show is going to be an interesting one. Um, In the last few decades, we've seen the merging of right-wing politics and the evangelical Christian church. We've talked about it a lot on this show already. The American right wing loves to claim that they are the ones promoting Christian values. The problem is most of what they promote couldn't be further away from quote-unquote Christian values, at least not if you're using the Bible to determine what Christian values are. It seems to me that most of the American evangelical church derives their beliefs not by using the Bible— but by adhering to an extreme political ideology that, in most cases, looks nothing like what the Bible actually teaches. Today, we are going to focus this discussion on economic issues. As it turns out, the right-wing conservative agenda pushes an economic system that is outright condemned throughout all of Scripture. The policies that they vote for and implement once in office are policies that deny workers a living wage. They try to strip away all social programs that benefit the public, and they demand the super wealthy pay very little or even nothing in taxes. A lot could be said about this, and a lot of data and statistics could be given here, but the basic point is to say that this ideology runs completely contrary to everything Jesus says in the Bible, as well as the general teaching we find throughout both the Old and New Testament. I'm going to take you through just a few examples from the Bible here, so... Let me start with Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities which God considered so evil that he had to destroy them. In fact, the cities were so evil that God couldn't find anybody in the cities who wasn't worthy of instant death. So God destroyed them by raining fire down from heaven. Growing up in the church, I was taught that the major sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual immorality. The term sodomy comes from this idea that gay sex was at the core of the sins of those cities. Here's the problem. The Bible actually tells us exactly what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were. The sin that God was so angry about wasn't gay sex. It was the sin of mistreating the poor. Ezekiel 16.49 lays this out. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. So, modern Christians love to preach against the quote-unquote evil, woke, gay agenda, but those same people support the actual sin that led God to punish Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the Bible. So, what we see early on in the Bible is this teaching that God's people should be helping the poor. And as we move on through the Bible, we find that this is a theme that runs through the entire book. I just want to highlight a few more verses. This one comes from Leviticus. And as I read it, ask yourself, is this teaching something most evangelicals would support today? Leviticus 25, 35-38 If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. Don't sell him food at a profit. That sounds a lot like a sort of food stamp type program to me. 
But let me go on. The Bible commands his people to have an economic system that aims for equality, not a system that allows some to profit while others to go hungry. This is the opposite of capitalism, and it comes straight from what Christians believe is the word of God. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29 lays out some laws that are meant to address inequality. Basically, it says that every three years, all the tithes collected should be saved for the poor, the orphans, and the elderly, so that their basic needs can be met. This is explicitly socialist. And let's not forget about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, where all the debt is erased as an order from God. Think about that the next time the quote-unquote Christian Republicans fight against any debt relief policy. Now, before anybody criticize this show for pushing our political agendas, remember, this isn't me talking. These are the teachings of the Bible. If you don't like them, you don't like the Bible. As a Christian, this is your God saying these things. I happen to like the spirit of a lot of these verses, but it's not coming from me. It's coming from your holy book. Let me move on to Proverbs, Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of the destitute. And then it goes on, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Do we hear a lot of Republicans defending the rights of the poor and needy? Honestly, I don't see it, and I think it's shameful and kind of disgusting that they advocate for policy that squashes the rights of the poor, literally the exact opposite of what their Bible demands of them. So I've given a couple examples of what kind of government system God expects of his people in the Old Testament, But here's one of the verses in the New Testament where I think it lays out a guideline for how Christians should function. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as had need. So here we have an almost more radical position. This verse is advocating that Christians should have no possessions. They should literally sell everything they have and give to whoever has a need. And this is expanded on in Acts 4, but this is talking about the time just after Jesus. What about Jesus himself? Surely he was a free market capitalist, right? Well, let's take a look at Matthew 19, 16 through 24. Then someone came to him, Jesus, and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus goes on to quote the Ten Commandments and basically tell him, you must keep the commandments. Then the young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, It will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When you hear Christians talk about how they want to emulate Jesus, well, Jesus had no possessions of his own. And he actually says, you can't even get into heaven unless you sell everything and give to the poor. I can't remember ever hearing a preacher teach that you should sell anything to give to the poor, but Jesus explicitly says you should sell everything. So just to reiterate, Jesus in other passages effectively damns people to hell who are not helpful to the poor. Matthew 25, 41-43 says, Then he will say to those at his left hand, You are accursed, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. The strongest language that Jesus uses in the whole Bible doesn't speak against abortion or gay people or transgender people. No, Jesus speaks against those who don't help the poor, the immigrants and the refugees. Literally, the main political positions of the American right are things that Jesus says will send them directly to hell. Again, they are anti-Christ. Now, if you say, well, yeah, but it doesn't actually mean we should sell everything we have. Yeah, that's exactly what it's saying. Again, I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying it. Jesus said a lot of radical things. When the central message of the earthly Jesus is ignored and Christians advocate policies that not only marginalize the poor, but also bolster the rich, 
should they really even be called Christians? I mean, they are actually arguing directly against Jesus' words. And listen to what the book of James says about rich people and think about how the American right supports pure, unregulated capitalism. James 5, 1 through 20. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. We hear a constant drumbeat from the right about how people like Bernie Sanders or AOC are radical leftists who hate the rich. Well, the Bible authors are far more radical. Condemning and cursing capitalist is a theme in both the Old and New Testament. Here are just a couple examples from the Old Testaments from Proverbs. Proverbs 28.20, The faithful will abound with blessing, but one who is in a hurry to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28.27, He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. And Proverbs 21.13, If you close your ear to the cry of the poor, you will cry out and not be heard. And I'll end my section here with a couple of passages from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. And it goes on, You cannot serve both God and wealth. And here's a quote that I thought was interesting from InjusticeMag.com about this verse. The original wording and context was, You cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is the biblical term for riches that was typically used to describe the debasing influence of material wealth. It carries the connotation that possessing such excessive amounts of money is intrinsically unethical. So this pithy quote is a succinct indictment against the rich. It perfectly encapsulates Jesus' belief that you cannot simultaneously be wealthy and be a good person. The two are mutually exclusive. If you wish to be a good person, you must prioritize your spirituality above any desire for wealth. Being wealthy means you are hoarding essential resources from those who are in need, and that's immoral. And then here's one last verse to think about. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And another quote from InjusticeMag.com. The historical connotation of the word meek makes this quote even more socialist than it might initially appear to a contemporary audience. Scholars note that its meaning has evolved over time and the difference is subtle but important, whereas today it implies gentle, soft, or timid. Back then it meant something more along the lines of powerless, humble, or poor. In other words, the meek are those who are marginalized and impoverished, who have had, the, had unjust acts inflicted upon them in an unequal society. In that light, the statement is clearly radical and revolutionary. It's suggesting that those who are systemically made powerless due to structural injustice will be rewarded. The tables will be turned. On the flip side, those who are powerful, such as billionaires and political leaders, will be on the losing end of that bargain. They will not inherit the earth or go to heaven. So I just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Yeah, um, it's great to hear all of these, especially in succession. Um, Thanks for putting these together, John. It just, yeah, I'm just reflecting on how, I mean, in the church that, that we attended, the the fact that the main sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not gay sex was something that was never addressed. Um, that is is such a wild flip from the reality, you know, that we were taught. And yeah, I'm just again reflecting on how how little this is practiced um, in contemporary Christianity. Um, again, to refer to the church that we went to. Um, we it was in uh i would say like an upper middle class neighborhood um but one of the neighborhoods right next to it was a much lower income neighborhood and our church um collected money to send to eritrea um to help christians who were being persecuted there but we never collected any kind of money to um do any kind of mutual aid um or any anything to help our literal neighbors yeah, and the a lot of the um, what was collected for um, 
the people in Eritrea, what didn't go to the people in Eritrea, it went to the pastors um, and a lot of what what these missionaries have done in Africa is really push a uh, political agenda, like an anti-gay agenda, which has really led to like an amazing amount of suffering um, for the people in that area. And um, so, you know, a lot of times their church will, you know, lay it out as if they're doing a lot of good by helping the poor in other nations, when in reality, they're just trying to push radical American politics on them. Yeah, and it really feels like, you know, another form of contemporary colonialism because, like, Christian missionaries have been part of colonialism and imperialism since the beginning. And I think sometimes we like to think that all of that is over, um, but it's still happening in these missions where, as you said, the money is going to the pastors or the leaders or the people with more power instead of going directly to the meek. And Eritrea is a country that, you know, has been in ongoing wars with Ethiopia. Um, and so, like, folks in Eritrea really do need that support, um, but they're not getting it. Yeah, I think all these passages are fascinating. It's one of the most clear things, like despite all of the biblical authors, there seems to be a consistency about um, judgment against the rich. And even though we know that the biblical authors a lot of times were writing from a more privileged position, even just being people that were able to write during that time period, um, showed a level of education and sophistication that probably puts them in um, at least like more of a middle class um, or a lower upper class, uh, but outside of the oppressed class for the most part. Although the uh, Old Testament is written obviously in the context of um, captivity and uh, or writing back upon, reflecting upon captivity. Um, but I think it's it's really fascinating how this thread runs through all of the authors of the Bible, uh, judgment against wealth, um, a uh, alignment with the poor, um, a concern about the injustice of poverty, which I think is like not focused on at all in the evangelical church, um, poverty and, you know, obviously reading into a pre-capitalist society, um, judgment on capitalism is like an imperfect science, but I think that capitalism has only exasperated a lot of the um, problems that the biblical authors um, see with wealth and wealth versus poverty. Um, so I think these are really fascinating. I also think that um, in reconstructing the historical Jesus, there are a few things that we can know for certain, but I think that... Um, the judgment upon the wealthy and the privileged and the alignment with the poor and the uh, oppressed and the downtrodden and the hated classes are um, something that's pretty strongly attributed uh, in the historical accounts that we have of Jesus's life. So, um, and I think it's accepted um, to a certain extent by the um, people that are trying to reconstruct a historical Jesus. So um, all this stuff is very fascinating. Yeah, it's irrefutable that the historical Jesus, if, if we can know anything about him, um, we, can, we can know that his message was clearly a, an empowering message for the poor. Um, and again, like I said in this presentation, uh, there's no way you can really twist anything that um, that Jesus said or did into some sort of pro-capitalist message. Uh, and like I said, this is not us pushing like some political agenda. We're simply pointing out exactly what Jesus says using his own words in many different places throughout the Bible. So I think it's interesting that you bring up that like, you know, that you're just reminding all of us that this is actually just what was written in the Bible. Um, and I really think it speaks to the broader themes of this podcast, um, thinking about, you know, which verses from the Bible get turned into like church doctrine or church teaching and which ones get overlooked. Um, 
And so I kind of wanted to talk about how we ended up here, you know, how we ended up with a contemporary Christianity that has people seeking wealth and success, um, that has, you know, quote unquote, Christian Republicans um, continually pushing laws that, you know, almost make it a crime to be poor. Um, And so I think that this really starts with the Protestant Reformation, um, which is kind of heartbreakingly ironic because Martin Luther's whole thing was translating the Bible into German and other languages that people could read so that they could directly access, you know, the teachings um, that are in the Bible instead of having to rely on the priests of the Catholic Church to, you know, say them at mass, to translate them from Latin, um, you know, getting it so secondhand. So after the Protestant Reformation, you know, after Martin Luther starts, you know, translating the Bible, um, John Calvin comes around and he starts Calvinism. But I, I say all of this to emphasize that even when Calvin was teaching and disseminating his ideas, all of his followers who were literate had access to the Bible, had access to these verses that you just read out loud for us, John. But um, Max Weber, who's a scholar, he um, published a very influential work called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism in 1904. And this was basically his thesis tracing how Calvinism heavily um, sort of paved the road for capitalism. Now, Max Weber's, it, it's a, I'm saying it's a thesis because it is contested. Um, and I do also want to emphasize before I lay this out um, that he is not saying Calvinism is the only factor factor in the development of capitalism. He's just saying it's a significant factor. And even if we put this aside, even if we put aside the issue of, well, is Calvinism responsible for the origin of capitalism, we can still use Max Weber's thesis to understand why contemporary Christianity is sort of missing the, you know, the horse for the cart. Um, so there, so Weber says that there's two features of capital of Calvinism um, that he thinks were really influential in the development of capitalism, or you know, creating this um, positive view of capitalism within Protestant Christians. And so those two features were predestination, which we talk a lot about on this podcast. You know, the idea that before God made the world, He you know made His VIP list of all the Christians who would get into heaven, and if you weren't on that list well you're just gonna suffer in hell you know eternally so one of those features was predestination and the other one was asceticism um, or self-denial and these two components of Calvinist teaching um, sort of end up in a positive feedback loop (laughs) Um, so asceticism you know is self-denial it's like okay we're not enjoying things in this life because we want to be quote-unquote good christians and you know we're gonna have fun in the afterlife but right now we're here on earth to follow our calling this was another component of calvinism and to do good deeds and to you know just live as we should as christians so all of these people are like living these ascetic lifestyles in the hopes that they get into heaven. So if you are, you know, really sort of denying yourself some of the the pleasures of life, you're really going to start to be anxious about whether or not you're going to heaven, right? It's like, I'm making all these sacrifices now. Are they going to pay off? And this is where it loops in to predestination. So obviously, you know, part of predestination is we can't know for sure whether or not we're chosen by God. And part of the group think that emerges around Calvinism is that people start to interpret their economic success as a sign that they're chosen by God. So you can see this, this positive feedback loop, this spiral starting to emerge where people are like, okay, we're going to deny ourselves like all of the pleasures of life. We want to make sure we're going to heaven. Oh, if we have economic success, like that's a sign that we're going to go to heaven. And so it creates this situation where Calvinist business people were making money, but then not spending it on, you know, vacations or nice things or whatever. They were just reinvesting it in their business. And that is, in essence, capitalism, right? You want to make a profit so that you can then use significant portions of that profit to gain more access to the means of production to increase your profit on the next cycle. Um, It's predicated on this growth and on this reinvestment in your business. So 
I think like this is a really interesting lens to sort of look at um, why Calvinists and why Protestants have become so enamored of capitalism. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think about it. Yeah, I think the um, Protestant work ethic is a fascinating concept. Um, So it's like, uh, you know, one of the things that happened with the like sort of ascetic trend in Christianity too, is I think that as, you know, we talk a lot about on this show, um, different historical situations, reinterpreting um, different factors. So as the Christian church became, um, moved to a position of power or a position of acceptance in society and weren't a, pu- a persecuted minority. Um, there was a movement towards um, uh, self-asceticism as a way to uh, continue in the suffering of Christ. Um, and so um, that movement, I think, eventually also influences the way that the Reformation tries to interpret that. And um, being frugal and um, making sure that you're uh, being a good steward of the uh, the uh, what you're entrusted with, um, the idea of being blessed uh, financially by God um, as one of the elect, um, the idea of working out your salvation in fear and trembling. So it's like this uh, uh, drive to continually being not just sitting back, like you said, and um, holding on to wealth, but like continually reinvesting wealth and sort of like this uh, continuing drive to um, make sure that you're being a good steward with everything that you're entrusted to. Um, and I, that worked perfectly in with uh, early capitalism and um, the drive that uh, is part of like the, uh, the capitalist drive to reinvest, the capitalist drive to um, push for more and more profit. Um, so those two things, you can see how they're like certainly intertwined, um, the ideas. Yeah. When you, Katie, when you mentioned the, um, this idea that, uh, economic success, financial success, they would take this as a sign that, um, they must be saved and, um, they're on the right, they're on the right path with God because clearly God is blessing them. This will lead us into a discussion, I'm sure, about the um, prosperity gospel, which we could talk about at another time. But I think it also gets into a discussion about faith in general, where, um, well, if somebody is sick, they they and they're not God's not healing them. Well, they just didn't have enough faith. And I think that um, this type of thinking, this type of philosophy, has just led to so much suffering in the world. Um, and it and it would just what an atrocious concept in general that um, people can look at things happening in their life and just assume that, well, God is giving them special um, attention that he's just not giving to other people. Well, I I must be special. I must be blessed. Yeah, it's really, again, it's it's just a sad, like, misreading of the Bible because the whole book of Job is... I mean, yeah, first God, quote unquote, blesses Job with all these riches, but then all of this, God, you know, allows all of this suffering to enter Job's life. And, but we see throughout that book that like God still, you know, considers Job one of his own. Um, And so it, again, it just illustrates that picking and choosing that happens. Yeah. And I want to, I want to say that um, I think that there are verses that um, prosperity gospel proponents would use in the Bible. And certainly anyone that's listened to this show knows that we aren't saying that the Bible only teaches one message. And I'm sure there, that there are verses you can point to that won't align uh, with socialism. And um, because I don't believe that the Bible is inerrant and I don't think it's teaching one message. I think it's teaching many different messages, but I was surprised when I was putting Uh, my little presentation together, just how many verses overwhelmingly support um, the thesis here that um, the main point of the Bible is really an anti-rich, pro-poor message, that it just permeates everything in the entire Bible to the point where 
I mean, I had to, I had to really decide what I was going to put in. I wanted to put in so much more and there's so many more verses that we can talk about. So, um, this isn't this isn't an issue uh, like a predestination first versus free will issue where you can find a good number of verses on both sides of of the debate. Um, no, in this in this instance, what you have is a lot of very clear anti-capitalist, pro-socialist verses throughout the entire Bible, and then a few scattered, kind of obscure verses that you can kind of twist and cherry pick to make the case that um, the prosperity gospel is the way to go. Yeah, I agree. I appreciate that framing. Um, And then speaking of prosperity gospel, um, I don't really want to focus on on like prosperity gospel too much because I feel like there is a pretty broad critique of that. Um, But I did look up um, how much, you know, what the net worth is of um, some members of the prosperity gospel vein of Christianity and then just some other like much more mainstream or Protestant um, figures. And so Creflo Dollar, who is a very well-known prosperity gospel preacher, his net worth is $27 which is a lot. Um, But then um, it's really overshadowed by the net worth of Pat Robertson and Joel Olstein, each of whom have a net worth of a hundred million dollars. Um, and they're not like explicitly preaching prosperity gospels in the way that Creflo Dollar is. Um, but those, I mean, a hundred million is a tremendous amount of money, especially when you compare it to the median U.S. household net worth, um, which is a hundred and twenty-one thousand dollars. Um, so again, just like the, the vast difference between how much these people who are looked up to as spiritual leaders, um, the vast difference between how much their net worth is and how much the median U S household net worth is, is really tremendous. And again, that's the median net worth. There are many, many people and families in America whose net worth is significantly lower than six figures, um, and again, we also like, so I wanted to see what Joel Olstein was sort of going to say about rich people, um, you know, about verses like Jesus saying in Matthew 19, 24, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and so I did find on his website, um, it's the Today's Scripture feature, and this specific one is from March 7th, uh, 2021. And he quotes um, 1 Timothy 6.10 that says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And again, it's not Joel Olstein writing this. It's someone who, you know, works for this, this huge conglomerate. But what they do say is, God has no problem with you having money as long as the money doesn't have you. And that really begs the question, at what number does the money have you? When your net worth is $100 million, does the money have you or not? Um, And then it goes on. There's a section that's called Prayer for Today. Um, And one of the lines in the prayer is, Thank you that you delight in prospering me, and I can use my wealth as a tool for good. So again, we see this notion that, you know, if, if God loves someone, he is going to make them prosper, which we've already, you know, which John has already sort of offered a counter to from many, many verses throughout the Bible. And then this notion of I can use my wealth as a tool for good. Well, what we saw in the verses that John read is that the early Christians were selling all of their possessions and... They were just giving that money to people who didn't have money, to the weak, to the oppressed, to the powerless. And we also have Jesus saying throughout, you know, the Bible that if you have wealth, you're not going to get into heaven. Or the expectation is don't have these possessions, don't hoard this. And so I just wanted to do this kind of case study of how someone who is considered a spiritual leader um, is interpreting these verses um, from a very different perspective than we are. Yeah, that was really fascinating. Uh, it's funny when we talk about Joel Olstein. I just what struck me is, you know, Joel Olstein was not that long ago in New York City, and he did a huge rally at Yankee Stadium, and he 
basically sold out Yankee Stadium to show you just how many people, even in New York, um, are just, uh, you know, fans of him and his ministry. And, uh, we, you know, we can talk a lot more about him and the problems, but I just wanted to point out how different Christianity looks now than it did in the time of um, Jesus or just after Jesus, like we see in the book mm. of Acts and in the letters of Paul, where you just had very like meek people meeting in households, literally giving everything they had um, to each other um, in, in a big pot. And, and the, all the, the resources were kind of divided evenly. And to now where we basically have this mega millionaire celebrity in, in, in the front of Yankee Stadium um, speaking to huge crowds of adoring fans, to me, like the, the difference in um, how Christianity started and where it's gone from there is just amazing to me. And um, I also, you know, how can you, you think about the amount of money that someone like Joel Olstein has and some of these other people in light of some of those verses that I read, especially the James passage, where it basically just talks about like the more wealth you have, the more corroding it is to your spirit. Um, and I'm sorry, like, you know, we could, we can in another episode break down all of Joel Olstein and the, all these, uh, the prosperity gospel people's defense of their, of their riches, but it's not going to stand up. It's not going to stand up to the really simple, teachings that we find throughout the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that that contrast you're raising between like these teachings are so simple and so direct and then oftentimes the way that they're interpreted, um the way the Bible verses are interpreted becomes so convoluted. And yes, there is like a real value in adding context sometimes, but the James verse like how much, you know, no amount of context is going to unsay what is said there. The, like the corrosion of your gold and silver will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Like there's not really any social or historical context that we can add that is going to erase what that verse means. Yeah, and the, and the brunt of that is aimed at rich people. It's not saying rich people who also support Rome or rich people who deny Jesus. It's saying rich people. And, um, and the same thing with Jesus. A lot of these quotes from Jesus are simply talking about, oh, you have a lot of possessions. Well, in order to get into heaven, you have to sell all of those and give them to the poor. And you know what? Even in the Bible, like the example given, like people weren't willing to do that. And that's, I think, exactly what we're seeing now. So, yeah, it's a radical message. If you don't like it, fine, but don't call yourself a Christian because this is basically like the central message of what Jesus had to say. So I just wanted to give a basic sketch of um, sort of uh, liberation theology and the way that they've um, interpreted the biblical text. Um, most of the evangelical church today pretty much ignore the Bible when it comes to the, this message. Um, there is a group of Christians uh, historically who have taken these verses seriously. Uh, this is a strand of Christianity called liberation theology. Um, I was just going to tell you a little bit about it today um, and uh, talk to, to about some of the reasons it's rejected by the evangelical church. Um, and uh, some of the ways that it's actually more aligned with uh, biblical teaching. Um, so I wanted to first just say, uh, talk about Glenn Beck. So Glenn Beck has been a conservative pundit. Um, he's done uh, an extended segment on its Fox show back in 2010, critiquing liberation theology. Um, some of the claims that he made are that liberation theology is the direct opposite of what the gospel is talking about, is Marxism disguised as religion, um, is related to President Obama's deep-seated hatred for white people and white culture, um, is the theology of Obama, is about dividing the world into oppressors and victims, is a completely perverted Christianity, and is teaching something radically different from Christianity. Glenn Beck also recommends that if you see the words social justice or economic justice on your church website, um, if you find it, run as fast as you can. So helpfully recommending that Christians leave their church if the church uh, decides that they want to have an emphasis on social justice or economic justice. The real claim is that uh, liberation theology is not really real Christianity. 
Um, so I thought it'd be helpful just to examine some of the ways that liberation theology um, conceptualizes our familiar um, biblical concepts. Um, and then I will leave it up to you all to decide whether you think it's an aberration of uh, historical Christianity or if it does fit with uh, what the Bible actually preaches. Um, but I'll leave that uh, decision up to you. So the first thing that's important to note when we're talking about liberation theology is that theology for liberation theology is reflection of praxis. Um, praxis is a somewhat fancy word for social practice. Um, and it's only through transforming society through this social practice that individuals can understand God's will. So through the poor, through the uh, process of um, reforming and transforming society, we understand what the will of God is, and that's where we start to build our theology. Um, for liberation theology, there's no unified liberation theology. So when you're talking about liberation theology, you're talking about liberation theologies. Um, it's really determined by the people living under whatever oppressive structure, what that liberation theology looks like, um, an attempt to provide a sort of unified definition, um, like Glenn Beck does, ends up being problematic for this reason. Um, and I think that will become clear as we talk more. Theology. So again, we said the starting point is the experience of the marginalized. Um, and the ultimate goal of theology is liberation from societal misery. So again, the starting point um, starts and is rooted in the experience of the marginalized people. Um, and that is their need, is the need that theology should answer. Um, praxis, again, we talked about praxis. Um, all praxis is derived from the perspective of the underside of power and privilege. So, um, again, you're talking about from the perspective of those who are without power and without privilege. That's the perspective that you start to build your um, social practice from. Um, and that's how you determine what praxis is appropriate um, to start to do your theology. <clears throat> this um, theological uh, chain is called See, Judge, Act. So as believers see oppression occurring, they judge the causes and commit themselves to act to remedy those causes. So it's a three-part uh, way of doing theology. Um, faith. Faith is manifested in what is done to the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked. Salvation. Salvation is concerned with the material, uh, so the needs that you have in the present time, and also the metaphysical, spiritual needs. God. God is offended by the dehumanizing conditions in which the marginalized find themselves. Um, so it's a God that identifies with suffering people, and um, is offended by suffering conditions. Um, the preferential option for the poor and the oppressed, which is the probably the most famous doctrine of liberation theology, basically says that God takes side with the poor over and against the rich and powerful because they are the oppressed. So again, not based on any type of uh, inherent goodness in the poor, but because of the um, social position that they find themselves in of being destitute or depraved or deprived of uh, material uh, need. <clears throat> the crucifixion for liberation theology. It's an act by Jesus of solidarity with all who are called the crucified people. It is a moment in history that was a political and a religious act. So uh, understanding the crucifixion in a historical perspective um, as a uh, man being crucified for sedition, um, a betrayal, Jesus' victimhood as a political victim, um, allows people that are political prisoners or politically suffering to um, fully identify with Jesus and have Jesus identify with them in their suffering. Um, God is present wherever the lives are. Uh, wherever lives are threatened with poverty and oppression, um, Christ literally dwells among us. So as you suffer through poverty and oppression, um, you're close to the crucified Christ. Uh, um, another important uh, uh, idea in liberation theology is that Jesus chose poverty. 
So the miracle of the incarnation is not just that God became man, but also that God became poor and identified himself with the poor. Um, the biblical text, and this may be uh, part of the issue that um, differentiates liberation theology from the evangelical church, the biblical text for liberation theology is authoritative, but not literal. Um, understanding contextually uh, through the experiences of the oppressed. So um, a lot of liberation theology began with oppressed people and poor people actually reading the Bible themselves and beginning the formulation of theology as poor people and oppressed people. Um, and then finally, the biblical narrative uh, is a means by which to hear God speak throughout history. So it's a way to identify God's work in history and um, to uh, draw those stories out into your pre the present experience of the oppressed. So that's liberation theology's uh, conceptions of um, our familiar uh, biblical theological uh, ideas. Um, I'll leave it to you whether to judge um, if it's a total aberration of Christianity or if it does reflect something that's been neglected by the evangelical church, which is the care for the poor. Um, I think that um, part of what Glenn Beck gets wrong is um, speaking, not surprisingly, in a purely polemic way, um, and without fully understanding the uh, theological completeness of liberation theology and understanding how these terms are used in a different way. Um, but a good faith effort to understand any theology will treat it not in a uh, way to judge it as sort of like a right or wrong, but a way to try to understand first the kind of like theological circle um, and the way it's conceived. Um, and then we can look at it and say whether that actually lines up to um, whatever our standard is, whether it's biblical Christianity in a historical sense or whether it's the biblical text that we're drawing out. Um, but I think that uh, liberation theology is fascinating, and I think it's difficult to have a discussion um, dealing with biblical, uh, biblical responses to poverty and not talk about um, the way that liberation theology has... Um, played a part in critiquing um, poverty that exists today from the perspective of doing the work of Jesus. But I think like, you know, a lot of the New Testament backs that up. Jesus literally went around performing miracles, feeding thousands of people with bread and wine and fish, like, you know, healing people who were crippled. And he wasn't Yes, okay, he was doing it alone, but he was also gathering a group of apostles, you know, which in a sense implies that he was, that, that he viewed this as a collective act. And I think the New Testament and then the early church, you know, what we know about it was extremely collective and inherent in that was a critique of the, the system of the empire of Rome, you know, and how it was creating poverty. And again, that's part of why the Roman empire decided to co-opt Christianity and to make it its official religion, because that's a great way to defang anything is to just, you know, whatever is opposing you just say oh no yeah we're totally on board with that and then start to change it and so I think that also is a really important component to think about historically when we think about like why these verses um, are interpreted in such different ways today and how it is that we now have this very individualistic take on what it means to be a Christian and what it means to show up in the world when there's so much injustice um yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I have a lot to say about um, the Glenn Beck stuff, but since I didn't listen to it, I won't comment. But um, yeah, like let's definitely commit to coming back to this subject. I mean, we have a lot more that we can talk about. Uh, we can go down a lot of different rabbit holes. Bible says what? what? 
So the verse for this week is from Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 24, and it says, quote, If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. End quote. So... I have two immediate thoughts on this. The first is that um, they really clarify the point that this is the situation if a woman is engaged. And so the man here is being punished because he insulted another man, right? Like, oh, this woman belongs to this other man and now this guy who raped her has like taken what you know is is that other man's like right or his property right the right to take her virginity and so I do wonder if there's other verses in Deuteronomy where they specify what happens if a woman who's not engaged um, is raped by someone you know what is the punishment for the rapist then and the other thought that I have here is that the woman is being punished because she did not cry out and um, this is you know it's just like (laughs) really enraging to read this because this is total victim blaming and it's like the people who wrote this never bothered to listen to what it is like to be raped like because what what is to say that this man didn't like cover the woman's mouth you know or otherwise like prevent her from crying out so again it really goes back to to the verse that john brought up um the other verse from Deuteronomy where it's like oh the woman is being like she grabbed the other guy's genitals and like again this this idea that this like hypersexualization of women yeah Katie I had pretty much the same thought as you um I mean my biggest point here is just how horrible the passage is first of all if the woman did cry out for help it's possible she would have been murdered by her rapist. Like, I've listened to enough true crime podcasts to know that sometimes the best strategy for someone being attacked is to remain quiet. So here you have, you know, a damned if you do, damned if you don't type scenario. And it hardly seems like the wisdom stemming from an all-knowing and all-living mind. It sounds more like something like a bunch of men came up with. Unfortunately, I probably know more about this than I should. Uh, I did. I was doing a whole independent um look into david and Bathsheba, and one of the articles that i read was um about the biblical concept of rape there are two different passages that specify a biblical concept of rape um one is the um this passage where it says the woman is in the city and it's considered rape because she didn't cry out there's another passage um where a woman is raped in the countryside and um, there is not the same um, burden of proof about crying out, but there's sort of an implication of resisting and fighting back. It's hard for me to express how offensive I find these two standards to be. And when you have, so this article was using the example of David and Bathsheba. And by all modern standards of rape, it decided using the biblical text and what it said, um, that it would qualify as a rape. But by the biblical standard, it did not qualify as a rape. This is supposed to be a perfect moral code. And I think it's very telling that human morality has far surpassed this as far as what it finds offensive, evil, um, sinful, if you want to call it that. And that the biblical text is lagging so far behind. The the biblical concept of rape is so far um, alien. And yes, granted, it's written hundreds of hundreds, thousands of years ago. Um, And it's difficult to impose a modern standard Um, on it but if that book claims that it's written by god or inspired by god and it's perfect and gives us the perfect guide for morality through all time i think it's hard for me to swallow my disgust at these two concepts that are so tainted by misogyny and rape culture and victim blaming um 
that when you have other instances in the Bible of clear rape, you can have people like Doug Wilson, who's a pastor who maybe we'll talk about other times, but an offensive individual, um, can say things like acronistic uh, definition of rape to judge the biblical text, when in reality, it's just a definition of rape. It's just a real definition of rape. And rape happens in the biblical text where it's not condemned because it's the woman's uh, autonomy is not even considered. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I find this extremely offensive. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of suspicion built into these texts about the woman. Um, it, there's always mm -hmm. kind of an underlying current of like, well, we, we better make sure that she didn't have ulterior motives or she wasn't enjoying it or, or s somehow a participant of it. Uh, and again, to me, it's just has all the hallmarks of being written by like men. And, uh, and like you said, Ben, completely right. The, um, the Bible hasn't evolved with like the moral standards that our society has. And, and that's totally to be expected if this is just an ancient book. But if it's supposed to be the perfect inerrant word of God, then I think it's really problematic. Part of the controversy with Doug Wilson, and I hate to even harp on this guy, was because Rachel uh, Dull-Hollander, who was um, a former athlete um, and one of the gymnasts who accused um, the trainer of um, molestation, the Olympic trainer, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. I um, think Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser, exactly. Um, but basically brought forth this case that opened this whole door, uh, was saying that in the way that we deal with these biblical texts and, and in consulting with victims of sexual assault, that we should be careful in our exegesis of, exegesis of these texts. Um, but unfortunately what happens is the interpretations of these texts do exactly what they do to victims of rape now. It's like... The burden of proof mm -hmm. is on the victim. The uh, Why didn't they resist? Maybe they secretly enjoyed it. Maybe they were secretly seducing it. Maybe Bathsheba was dressed in a provocative way. Like, this is what we do to rape victims now. And this is a big, big problem. Yeah, I agree. As, as a last thought, I'm just sort of reflecting on, you know, how in some things this text, the, the Bible as a text, comes out so clearly against some injustices, right? We've seen verse after verse after verse after verse saying you have to help the poor, you shouldn't be accumulating wealth. And it's interesting because I feel like in our contemporary society, we see these oppressions, like these systems of oppression as interlocked and supporting one another, right? So patriarchy, capitalism, racism, all of these things are connected and are almost like the three like stakes, of, like the three poles of a tent holding it up. And so it is interesting to sort of see how and to sort of trace how across different civilizations, like different oppressions have sort of been yoked or unyoked, right? Like it's just very fascinating to read in the Old Testament people condemning wealth and saying help the poor, but still upholding these incredibly misogynistic um, and violent views towards women. Yeah, and I think that um, what's really missing, a major thing that's missing is just a the influence of women in the writing itself. I think that when you cut off 50% of the population from having any influence on the text, like, of course, you're going to have kind of a one-sided um, view of things. And um, again, I know that's more of a modern concept that I'm imposing on the Bible. But again, the Bible, the claim of the Bible is that it's timeless and that um, is above all of that. It's the absence of women as contributors to writing the text, but also as like contributors to interpreting the text, which is why you're starting to have more interesting, better interpretation now, because women actually have are participants in uh, like divinity studies and uh, biblical t criticism and um, historical criticism. And so their thoughts on these texts that have been all like, these uh, thoughts that have largely been written by men and these interpretations that have been largely been written by men are finally starting to be challenged by women. Um, and that's why you get 
a lot of times these more interesting interpretations and at least like a set of eyes that is reading it in a different way. False Witness. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we each have made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. Take it away, Ben. Verse number one. Consider the blameless. (laughs) Verse number one. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. A future awaits for those who seek peace. Verse number two. You will know my faith is one that admits some doubt, brethren. Verse number three. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. And verse number four. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Well, I guess let's start at the top. Um, consider the blameless, observe the upright, a future awaits those who seek peace. This has to be Proverbs or Psalms to me. It's just like a kind of a, a nugget of wisdom. Um, number two, you will know my faith is one that admits some doubt, brethren. That to me sounds like, um, didn't Paul say something like this, Ben? Yeah, I think that the I think that that's real. I don't know where it's from, and I think it's because it sounds kind of like something that is uh, goes against the counter, uh, the goes against prevailing wisdom. Um, but I actually think it is real. Yeah, I um, actually really like that verse. Uh, okay. Number three, your be your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Could be like something to I mean, I don't remember the specific verse. It seems like it could be some sort of Abrahamic um promise or promise to Israel. And then number four, there is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. These are like <laughs> Yeah, they I all mean, seem like they could be real. They all seem very <laughs> real. What do you think, Katie? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like number four is definitely real. Number one feels real. I'm sort of waffling between two and three. I kind of want to say it's three, but that seems too on the nose given the <laughs> the broader context of this episode. Yeah. Sometimes it's like almost better to try to guess the motives of uh, our crafty producer, Diana, (laughs) than to even like try to analyze the verses because it's so, I mean, they all don't, none of them, if you're looking for something that's going to counter what you think the Bible teaches um, or that would seem out of place, I think the closest you have is you will know my faith is one that admits some doubt, brethren. But even that, like I said, I think is actually real. Um, the other ones are very innocuous in their, um, theology. And I do kind of agree with Katie, like number three seems to be sort of (laughs) saying like, not exactly like it's sort of fitting counter to what our, uh, theme was because eventually there's prosperity, but that's, I mean, I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, probably we should just make predictions. So I know I said, I think this comes from Paul number two. But I also feel like, I know I feel like I say this every time, um, and I'm usually wrong, but I think that that one stands out to me because, again, I feel like that's something I really would have taken note of, like like in like in its word-for-word context, about that the faith admits some doubt. I feel like that would be kind of something that's talked about more or I would have taken notice of. So I'm going to go with number two being the false witness. Ugh. I'm tempted to go along with number two as well. Um, But I'm going to go with three. I'm sticking with three. Okay. Well, I don't really have a good notion. Um, So I'm going to go with number one. Okay. 
Because I just want to have three different options. <laughs> yeah, so we've all picked a different one. The only yeah. one that we all agree is definitely in the Bible is number four. So maybe I'll start with that. Yeah. Number four uh, comes from Proverbs. It's, there is surely a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs twenty three eighteen. I guess let's go next to the one that um, Ben thinks is the false witness. That's number one. Consider the blameless, observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. Comes from Psalm 37, 7. Um, um, Okay, Katie thinks the false witness is number three. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. Comes from Job 8, 7. So that means that number two is the false witness, and I got it right. Damn it. Again. I don't know. (laughs) This is suspicious to me. Yeah. Uh, you know my faith is one that admits some doubt. This comes from Barack Obama. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it's a Barack really? Obama. It's a apparently it's a Barack Obama quote. That's what it says here. Uh, That's what it <laughs> says brethren? here. Brethren, Obama said brethren. No, you know my faith is one that admits some doubt. Oh, and then she added brethren. Oh yeah, I'm because I'm reading the envelope. Right, she added brethren. She's very crafty. With yeah. This. So was it? I mean. So yeah, she took Barack Obama's quote and she kind of made it, put it in an old English uh, bent, so to fool us, and um, it almost worked. But I was able to sniff it out. Yeah. Good job, Diana. All right. So we're gonna start ending the show with a quote, but uh, here we go. The essence of the independent mind lies not in what it thinks, but how it thinks. Christopher Hitchens. Thanks, guys. I had a lot of fun today. All right. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, John. Yeah. All right. So long. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Ooh.